Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on donation? What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm your host Carson Brabber, and alongside me today is Logan Camden. And today. We are doing some classic NBA discussion here on Nerd Sesh, but we would like to throw a little bit of a twist into it, if you all will help us. We wanted to do the back end of today's show with some fan questions, if you will, a little bit of a mailbag type deal, but we haven't gotten any questions yet. So if anybody does have any pressing questions they want answered, you can go ahead and find us on Twitter at nerds uh, underscore sesh, and we will answer them there. But for now, Logan, we're going to start with some of the pressing topics that have been on our minds. And the first one is the MVP race, which... I think we are both pretty clearly on the record with where we stand at the top of this race, but I think the bottom of it is a lot more interesting, actually, just as far as if you had a whole ballot, where are you filling out those three through five spots, maybe? And so let's start from the bottom and let's work our way up spot by spot. Who would you have as the number five MVP candidate right now? Uh, At number five, I'd have James Harden still, uh, Carson, Mm. and uh, I think it's just a testament to what he was able to do with Kevin Durant and uh, Kyrie Irving out temporarily, but... To me, uh, I have him above a guy like Chris Paul even. Uh, I mm-hmm. think Paul's impact has been felt uh, a lot this season, and uh, the point guard position was something that Phoenix has needed the entire time that Devin Booker's been here. That being said, uh, the argument that I have had, and I know you have, Carson, is uh, the players around Devin Booker have all been so much better this season and not just Chris Paul. Cam Johnson is so much more improved. Aiden as a rim protector. Bridges. Uh, This roster is entirely improved, so I think to solely attribute the success of the Suns this season to Chris Paul is looking at it a little too, you know, in a bit of a tunnel. So Mm -hmm. Paul is probably sixth just off. I know he's a a hot topic point of contention. Um, Jimmy Butler, I've heard, is in some people's MVP races as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, he might be in my top ten, but right here uh, I've got Harden at my five spot just because um, I think he is the – I think he's been the player that has impacted winning the most uh, for the Nets team this season. Well, I completely agree that he has been the most prominent driving factor, but I also think when you have a guy like Kyrie having a historic offensive season of his own, Harden's only played 34 games in Brooklyn. I think there was a stretch when he was really carrying them in a really impressive way. Some of those games with Kyrie out, although really not that many of them, not as many as people sort of made it out to be. He has a case to be on the back end of this ballot. I actually don't have him. Jimmy is a very strong candidate, too, just because of what the Heat have been with him versus without him. I think they're 6-11 and without him, and then they're a lot better than that with him, obviously. And if you look at the on-off splits, they have been significantly better with him on the court. 10.5 points per 100 possessions better with him out there. I think he changes them on both ends. So, strong case to be made for him. I guess it just feels a little bit weird with how disappointing the Heat have been on the year as a whole and not as disappointing when he's out there. But I don't have Jimmy in my five spot with the Heat sitting at the seventh seed right now. I have another guy who is locked up in the sixth seed right now, out west that is, and that is Luka Doncic, who obviously having a historic, historic season, putting up 29-8-9 on 48-36-73 splits. And I think that the thing with Luka that we just continue to undersell is how good the Mavs have really been when they've been healthy. And they were red hot, really, right leading up to the All-Star break and then for a little bit after, and then they seemed to get a little fatigued, cooled down just a bit. 
But I think that when they are fully healthy, they are certainly one of the best six teams out west. I don't think it's close between them and the Blazers. Their healthy starting five has a net rating of 12.6 and an offensive rating of 123.7. For reference, last year's Mavs offense, which was then the best of all time, had an offensive rating of 115.9. But it's just been that for so much of the season, we didn't get to see that group all together. They're also 32-26 and 26 overall, but if we're going to talk about how much better the Heat have been with versus without Jimmy, what we need to remember is a lot of the stars, we just don't get to see miss 17 games. So we don't really get that full frame of reference of how bad their teams can be without them. Like the Mavs are 1-4 without Luka. They're 31-22 and 22 when he plays. So I think we can safely say when you lose your entire offensive engine, you extrapolate that out to 17 games without him, and it's not pretty for the Mavs. So they have a top-10 offense because of him. No one else on this team gets their own shot at a high level. Nobody else. Richardson has been much too hot and cold on the year. KP, it's just up to whether or not he can hit that trailing three time and again and whether or not he's going to hit those turnarounds. And, I mean, he's been better this year, but still not as good as I would like him to be. So I just think when guys are knocking down shots, this team is kind of unstoppable because Luka's going to create so many great looks. And when they've been healthy, they've been really, really good. And they're doing that as a team without a second star without a third guy who is up to the caliber of most of these teams out West, and that is because of Luka. Yeah, I'd agree for the majority, but Kristaps has looked exceptional recently. But that's what he does. Last year, as much as we uh, complained about his game and how disappointing he was, he still had a stretch where he averaged like 30 a game over eight or something. It's just if he's hitting those shots for the most part. Yeah, I have Luka in my four spot as well. I think you have to have him here. Uh, The clear, as you mentioned, the clear lack of talent around him comparatively to other teams. Uh, I think is accentuated by this roster. Um, mm-hmm. Again, if if you're knocking down shots, the rest of this team here around is a plus for Luca. But he is still in those big moments, as we've seen. They don't give the uh, Luca didn't even pass the ball in late game scenarios in clutch situations. It is a complete ISO possession, uh, and he's got nobody else around him, mm-hmm. um, which I think really cements his case. I want to ask you a question really quick about uh, circling back to Jimmy Butler. Yeah. I mean, a slight increase on the offensive end when he's out there. Uh, is there any like real negatives, you think, to the Jimmy Butler case? I would just say the fact that he hasn't been able to carry them to be an actually good offensive team. And defense is obviously the ultimate team effort. Jimmy is a great part of a really good defense, but the defense was also good without him. He gets the offense to be respectable, and you can't hold it against him that other guys aren't just hitting shots that they hit for all of last year pretty much, like a hero, like a Dragic guys who are shooting – 33% or below from three. But it also would be nice if as an offensive engine, you could actually take your game up another level as that scorer with that lethal pull-up three maybe that Jimmy obviously just doesn't have. So that would be the counter-argument, I guess, but I think it's undeniable the impact he's had on winning. So my number four is Giannis Antetokounmpo, who is kind of a boring MVP candidate as far as the scope of this season goes, but I think there's also a reason that he repeated as MVP and was deserving of both of those awards. Putting up 28.5, and 11-6 on 56% from the field, and is obviously not having the season that he did last year. The raw statistical output is not there, the team success is not there, and defensively, obviously, he was depoy last year. I didn't think he should have been, but he's still very good there, it's just not at the level of last year. Last year, he held people to 36% shooting when he was the primary defender, This year it's at 41%, which is about 5% below average, still very arguably all defense, but not deploy level. And this is a Bucs defense that has also dropped to eighth. And so while the offense has still been very, very productive, it's the defense that has taken a little bit of a step back. And Giannis has taken a little bit of a step back on that end as well. But he is still the best player by far on a 36-22 and team. It's eight points per 100 better with him out there, who still plays both sides of the floor at an elite level and can be that driving force of a really good offense. So... I think if we're going to have Giannis out of our top five completely, that's voter fatigue, and I do not believe in voter fatigue because I'm a robot, and I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure not only do we get the winner right every year, but we get the exact hierarchy. Oh, no, there's some voter fatigue here for me. I don't have, Giannis. I don't have Giannis in my top five. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you make a good case, though. And I want to ask, did you say that you think he's fallen off a little bit on the offensive end? Defensive. Okay, I, I completely agree um, yeah. because I think – the Bucks' offense has been exceptional with Giannis on the floor this season. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have a guy that just commands this much attention in the post when he's driving and you have shooters surrounded uh, around him like we've seen this season in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. uh, good things are going to happen. I think that – I don't know, man. There's a case to be made, but I think when I, – I shouldn't logically hold this against him. When you have guys like Holiday and Middleton where you have to depend on them late in games – 
I take that a bit off of uh, Giannis just because I think that matters, man. Mm-hmm. In late-game scenarios, he is not the primary creator for this team, and I just think that should be a big factor against Giannis. We have been over, though, how terrible Middleton has been in the clutch, <laughs> and so maybe you could argue it is time to switch things up. I don't oh, think oh, it is, though. You want a Giannis top of the key three? I don't. I think Middleton should be one of the best late-game bucket getters in basketball. It just happens to be that there's a very established track record of him not being that, as we touched on a couple shows ago. All right, so let's get into the top three now. Who do you have third? I think the top three is pretty clearly cemented uh, with who they are. I Mm -hmm. have Steph at three just because of the Warriors' team success not being as high. And I think for all of the people that think Steph should win, you know, that think Steph should win MVP, their argument is always, oh, what would the Warriors be without him? They'd suck. Yeah. They'd be the worst team in basketball. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with that assessment, but there is just a certain benchmark that you have to hit team-wise, wins-wise, to truly be in contention for this award and what Steph has been doing is exceptional it's literally I don't know if it's ever been done before nearly 40 points per game this efficiently with this poor roster around you Grant Draymond has been facilitating excellently mm-hmm. uh, it, it's been amazing but you just there's a benchmark of wins that you have to hit and the Warriors just aren't there and you can't hold that against Steph but I'm damn sure not giving an MVP award to a guy where uh, they're sitting at you know Low in the West. Yeah, no question. And I think that what Steph has done, obviously, is historic production. I would never take that away. And as I touched on for 13 minutes in a video, I think this is a more evolved version of Steph than we've ever seen, who's capable of dominating games in a pick-and-roll-heavy style and really creating for himself more than ever before. Like, we've seen him surpass the threshold where he's taking more pull-up threes than threes off the catch. He hasn't done that since his unanimous MVP season. He's an incredible offensive engine, obviously mind-blowingly efficient. And when a guy's putting up 31-6-6 six, six on 49, 42.5, 92.5 splits, 66% true shooting, they are deserving of a top three nod, I would think, in pretty much any race. And that is where I have Steph because, obviously, the lack of team success is damning when it comes to ultimately getting the award. But if you're going to compare him to guys who have won and didn't have that accompanying team success, like the only example is Russell Westbrook in recent years, Russ had so many other issues to his candidacy that Steph just doesn't have. Steph does drive winning, and the Dubs are 29-23 and 23 with him. They're 1-7 and seven without him. Like, that is a testament to his value, and that means that when he plays, they have the record of the number six seed out west. Now, it's not totally fair because if we take away games where Luka was injured, then the Mavs would still have a better record. But regardless, that's a legitimate playoff team when he's out there. And the level he has had to get to to guide them to those wins is just disgusting. In wins this year, he's averaged 33.1 points per game on 50.4, 45.395 splits. It's basketball perfection offensively. And that's not even accounting for his tremendous value off the ball as the greatest weapon ever there, opening up so many opportunities for others just with his gravity. That's just the raw production, and it is otherworldly. They're 8.7 points per 100 better with him. They're top 10 offense with him versus the worst in the league without him. And you just see it when you watch it, how incredibly dependent everything is on him. When the Warriors say, okay, we're just going to send a second defender at you every time, there are times they can navigate that. They can say, okay, let's run the Steph Draymond pick and roll, and then we'll have Draymond either have the floater or the lob. But when Steph isn't the guy getting his own shot, you can't trust anybody else to, anybody else. And it's just a Herculean effort to get them to respectability that I think is even more impressive than Giannis being the front man for another really good Bucks team because – Obviously, just the degree of difficulty is so much higher, but there's a threshold. We've never seen a nine-seed win MVP. I think the last MVP who I can think of who won that wasn't on a 500-plus team, which the Warriors are teetering on. Now, they are better than 500 by a decent amount with Steph out there, but still, by the end of the season, I think was Pettit in 56, and that was the second MVP ever. We were still refining what the award meant at that time. We're done refining. We know what it means. It means top two seed, which it has been for... Every year but two since, I think, 83 was when that streak began. Or do something so insanely historic like a Jokic this year, and you still get close to that threshold of winning, and then we can justify it. But Steph is not there as great as he has been and as significant as his impact has been on elevating the Warriors from the gutter to very respectable status. And I think there's a different level of incompetence when you talk about the Warriors roster this season. Carson, you talk about not, you know, not trusting any Warrior to create their shot. I don't trust any of the other Warriors to do anything. Except for Draymond. Yeah, Draymond to make a couple passes. I'm talking about in the situations late game. We see Jordan Poole go up for for a a game-winning layup and passes out. Like, Nico Mannion on a fast break. That was Damian Lee. That was Damian Lee. 
I get the two confused. I will not hear Jordan Poole slander. Oh, Jordan Poole's a beast. Yeah. I just think when it comes down to it, what I truly believe and what the president says is it is more impressive to elevate a team from being okay to being really, really good than it is to elevate a team from being terrible to being okay. Like, why did Kobe not win MVP in 06? And why do I think that he didn't deserve it? We have a bunch of examples historically, AI teams, T-Mac in 03, of guys who can carry their teams to be respectable with insane production, and they don't sniff the MVP. They finish fourth. They finish fifth. And I think Steph is doing it on a higher level of efficiency. I think he's better than any of those versions of those players, which is why I think we can get him up to third. But in an MVP race with historically great candidates at the top, I'm not going to give it to a guy who's scrapping to get into the playoffs. Yeah, I agree. I just think when you look at the top two and the rosters collectively around them, it's so much it's so much less impressive. Like, it, it, there's just there's a lot of lines to be drawn. Like, how much credit do I give Joel Embiid for being a really good rim protector this season when he's got Ben Simmons and Matisse Thybul over there? Yeah, but look at the Sixers with him without him. They're a 500 team without him. They're 30 and 11 when he plays. What would the Nuggets be without Nikola Jokic, and, Logan? That's something I want to ask you. Yeah. If you plug in, and I know this is not apples to apples because they play different positions, if you plug Curry in Philadelphia, if you plug him in Denver, do you think they suffer? That's a very difficult comparison to make, I would say, because of just the respective identities of those teams. But I would say as much as everything is predicated on Steph in Golden State, everything is predicated on Jokic in Denver. And he has better shot makers around him, no question. He has guys like Barton and Monte Morris who can competently handle out of the pick and roll and knock down a big mid-range jumper. And he has guys like MPJ who are some of the best shooters off the catch in basketball. But he creates all of that offense. And those guys do not look as good anywhere else as they do in Denver. And that is the Jokic effect. He amplifies everybody else around him and is going to create more total offense than Steph almost as efficiently and do it on an all-time great offense, which is why I still think it has to be him. Spoiler, man. Almost got all the way to the top without saying who I think it is. Let's keep it moving, though, to the runner-up spot. Who do you have? Yeah, so I mean, I have Joel Embiid here in my two spot just because of uh, the difference that we've seen from uh, the Sixers' offense with him on the floor versus without him. I talk about how murky it is when attributing defensive value when you have so many good players around you. Uh, they've got an offensive rating of 114.4 with Embiid on the floor. They uh, it, A pretty slow pace, and his on-off splits are great. He's He commands so much attention down there on the low block. He is the complete offensive engine for the Sixers, and it's weird, Carson, just because I don't think there are many guys that you can say in the league today that run their offense completely through the low block like Joel Embiid, you know? Mm-hmm. Bam Adebayo can go out to the top of the key and handle a little bit. Jokic can as well. And we see we see point Embiid time to time, but it's definitely not uh, nearly as much as how often we see it. Mm-hmm. The case that I would give against Embiid, uh, the biggest one, though, would just be, again, the, uh, the depth of talent around him. We've seen a near all-star campaign from Tobias Harris this season. We've seen Ben Simmons play exceptionally well. Mm-hmm. Um I just think it makes it tough to gauge, but I still think there's the Sixers are way more talented than the Nuggets, and that's why yeah. I don't think it's closer between him and Jokic. Yeah, I mean, what Embiid is doing is transcendent. I have him in my second spot, too, and I honestly think had he played every game of the season, it would be incredibly close between him and Jokic, and although I think Jokic's value as that offensive playmaking engine like we've never seen before, again, who can literally carry this team without another star to be one of the best offenses ever, whereas Embiid they're still just hovering around league average as an offense on the whole. That is a different level, but also, obviously, Embiid has a different level of defensive impact that I think sometimes gets a little overstayed. Like, he's a really good defensive center, but he still is a little bit of a lumbering presence and isn't the most switchable guy in basketball. And so I've talked about this before, but I still think he is more in the conventional mold of an MVP. He's on the team that is fighting to be the one seed, and Jokic is on the team that is all but certainly going to be the four seed at this point. But I just think when you've missed 18 games, that's kind of where the conversation starts and ends. He's not Bill Walton where they were 50 and 10 when he got injured and he was so clearly a class above everybody else. That's not what he's doing right now. Now, they are outscoring opponents by 11 points per 100 when he's out there, and he does score 30-11-3 and on 64% true shooting. It's one of the best offensive seasons we've ever seen from a center, but it's not as good of an offensive season nearly as what we're seeing from another guy. And again, the health factor is just too much for me to overlook. Yeah, I mean, and on top of that, what Jokic has been doing with Jamal Murray out to keep the Nuggets afloat has been insane. Yeah. So let's just talk about him now. Jokic, I have him number one. And by the way, I'm going to make some money off of that because I bet on him very early in the season when he had great odds. 
Is it is it legal here yet? No idea. <laughs> but hey, come after me, right? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna send the police to the Bill Austin Radio Studio. Sure. No uh no underage gambling. Um I think it's it's so far and away Jokic, just the way that Watch Carson's YouTube video. It's actually excellent. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote a few lines here. Um, I mean, the way that you can run offense through him is unlike anyone that we've ever said before. Is I've gone on record and said I think he's the best uh, offensive pick and roll player ever. The the versatility that you can have out of that off of the short roll. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad Carson even more now that the Nuggets have gotten uh, Aaron Gordon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think that. Sorry, I'm getting off track here. It's a different team, though. He's fantastic. I'm thinking with Jamal Murray out, it is so much more valuable to have a guy like that on the team who I think can do a lot of little stuff. Also, my pick for MPJ, uh, putting up 25 a night. It's looking pretty good, isn't it, Carson? Not good enough. You want to hop on that take? Nope. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> Jokic has still got really good uh, pieces around him and guys like Will Barton and guys who can do a lot. Monte Morris, who are really good off of screens in the pick and roll. But none of it works without him. Like, you take Jokic off of the Nuggets. People want to talk about Curry without the Warriors. I even think the Nuggets with Jamal Murray, Carson, mm-hmm. are an average team. Maybe yeah. maybe below league average. Jokic is the only player in the NBA today that I think you can that you can plug in in any situation. He would take from being a maybe a lottery team to a team that is contending for one of the top uh, seeds out West, and that has to be rewarded. Yeah, I'm not going to do the full Jokic spiel. We've done it so many times. The amount of Jokic rants, Jokic videos that there are up to this point from me, it's too much. And so that's not why I wanted to have this conversation today. I want to talk about the bottom half, and I think, honestly, talking about some of the guys that we don't have will be really interesting too. But here's what I'll say. Putting up 26-11-9 on 64% true shooting, all-time efficiency, all-time offensive production. They're now 7-2 and two without Jamal since his initial injury, and the offense has not lost a beat. They have an offensive rating of 118.4 over the last five since his ACL tear. That's 7-2 and two without him since he had that initial minor injury that kept him out four games and then came back for one, had the ACL tear very unfortunately. But he's leading a top-three statistical offense of all time with now Will Barton as the primary pick-and-roll ball handler, and they haven't lost a step. It just doesn't matter. And, like, are they going to feel the lack of Jamal in the playoffs because he does have a different level he can get to and the mid-range shot making is so unbelievable that late in games it is that deadly I do think that they will probably miss that but they still have guys who as long as you can make a relatively high clip of those pull-up jumpers out of the pick and roll you're gonna have a lead offense because Jokic will do everything else for you so let's talk about some of the near misses now because you briefly mentioned Chris Paul do you want to elaborate on that at all because I think that he's a guy who has picked up a lot of momentum neither of us had him I don't think his case is all that compelling. Yeah, I mean, neither do I. Uh, again, I think that this position is something that uh, Devin Booker has always needed. He needs a, mm-hmm. a defensive guy who can facilitate a little more and take that pressure off of him because, I mean, we saw Booker in that point guard role, and he was all right. He was good. He was competent, but that's not his That's not his skill set. He yeah. is so much better off-ball as an off-ball relocator and cutter when – Chris Paul just helps this offense move a little better. It's what he's done everywhere else. I just don't get why when he went to Houston and they were exceptionally, you know, super successful. Carson, why didn't we give him the MVP there? I think people are still criminally underrating Devin Booker yes. when evaluating this team and giving way too much way too much credit to Chris Paul. And this isn't to diminish his case. Again, he's up at like 16-8 and eight this season. Him and Aiden have a great uh, pick-and-roll uh, combination on lobs, on rolls. He's great. Yeah, It's just not MVP-level production and MVP-level impact on winning basketball. Yeah, so I just think, look, this is a pretty clear instance of people not really understanding the difference between correlation and causation because we can't just point at this and say CP3 has been the single factor that has taken this team from, oh, wow, they're scrapping to be close to 500 to now they're up there for the best team in basketball. This is a... First of all, two-headed monster at the top with one of the best supporting casts in basketball. And I think there's a few sort of ideas that we need to dismiss of here. First of all, the idea that CP3 changed this team's defensive identity and that he is still some all-defense level guy. You know what people shoot on CP3 when he's their primary defender? 50% at the guard spot. It's atrocious. It's 5% above their average. And on the flip side of that, the notion that persists that Book is some disaster defensively. Book competes, man. Now that he has an incentive to, he competes regularly. He is a dog. What more can you ask for him? He's a perfectly fine defender. Offensively, CP3 contributes barely more total offense than Book between points per game and assist points combined. They score an identical efficiency. And 
Here's another thing. If we're going to just chalk up all the team success to CP3, why are the Suns better with Book on the court than they are with CP3? That is a statistical truth. It's because I just think we completely undersell the, first of all, burden of Book to be the scoring engine for this team night in, night out. The incredible effect he has as that constant weapon off ball and just the gravity that he has where he catches the ball at the elbow. Two defenders are sent right at him immediately. He's a very good passer at this point and obviously isn't putting up the assist numbers that he did when he had the ball in his hands all game, but he shouldn't be because that's not what he was good at. And I think that we also undersell the luxury CP3 has to where some games he just doesn't have to score. Like in the clutch, the man has been unbelievable this year. It's terrifying. Just gets to his spots and he kills you from the mid-range. But he had a four-game stretch last week where he averaged under nine points per game. And then everybody just talks about his assist-to-turnover ratio. It's like, yeah, he has a phenomenal command of the game. One of the best ever. And is one of the best playmakers ever. And elevates his teammates, no question. But Book doesn't have that luxury. Book can't go out there and say, I'm not really going to shoot for the first three quarters. And so... I also just think that giving him credit for everybody improving is so foolish. Like, does CP3 make people better? Of course. Does CP3 help the guys around him improve through even within a given season? Of course. Is he the reason that Aiton is playing great defensive basketball? Is he the reason that we've seen the elevation from campaign as a playmaker? Is he the reason that we have seen Cam Johnson take a jump and Mikhail take a jump and Dario playing the best basketball of his life? Like, everybody is better on this team and we just say, that's Chris Paul. No, that's not just Chris Paul. He's not a superhuman. And I just think Book is the better player of the two. I think if they win a couple playoff series, it's going to be on the back of Book going supernova. And I don't think either way that either of them are good enough candidates, though, because this is the ultimate team effort. And, like, they are phenomenal basketball players. I love them both. They're a couple of top 20 guys. But I just think when it comes to the MVP race, when we have guys who are single-handedly propelling teams like this, it doesn't make sense to say, let's reward the ultimate team effort, and I think the same thing about the Jazz. Yeah, oh, I completely concur, and I think there are cases to be made for, I guess you can make a Mitchell or a Gobert case, but yeah. it, again, it's tough. It's You're fighting an uphill battle because everyone around them is playing such great basketball. And I thought about having Gobert on my ballot as a candidate, but... For, for MVP. Yeah, because he changes one entire side of the ball, but then I was like... They also have the number four offense in the league, so they would be a very good team without him. And the same can be said for Mitchell. They'd be an elite offense without him and an elite defense without him. They also have this really cool um, award called the Defensive Player of the Year. I'm just saying, man, I wasn't considering him to win the whole thing. I was considering him for my five spot, all right? Because I do think best player on the best team in the league, who, again, is by far the best player on one end of the ball, makes an outside case. There's one more guy here who neither of us had who I think might be surprising to some. Our dear friend Peyton T. Gallagher declared he was the most valuable player for some time. Damian Lillard, why was he not on your ballot? I mean, I mean, first is just the record scenario, where the Blazers sit in the standings. I couldn't yeah. give MVP to Dame uh, at, the, at the seventh spot, although I did have Luka here, so I guess they're— um, Same record. It is a case to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, Dame, just to me, you have got to— You've got to be so much higher in the standings. Like, yeah, that's an issue, but it's... Dame also has a lot of offensive help around him. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that that should play a huge role in diminishing what Dame does for this team. They don't move without him. He is still the best scorer, the best shot maker on this squad, and he's one of the best uh, shot makers in basketball. But to me, it's just he just doesn't have nearly the impact of any of these other guys. Yeah, I mean, I think that the apples-to-apples comparison has to be him to Luka, right? Those are the two guys who... Their value is all offensively. They've carried teams to be tied for the six seed out west right now. But I just think the difference is what direction are they trending? And I just think Luka has had a better impact on winning this year. Since the All-Star break, Dame is putting up 26-7 and on 42% from the field, 35% from three. And the Blazers are 10-14. and So they are trending in the wrong direction. A couple of those games were with him out from injury. But he scores thus than Luka. He's a significantly inferior playmaker. As you mentioned, he has the better supporting cast offensively, no question. And... Obviously, people will talk about the injury factor, but their guys have been back for, in Nurk's case, a bit. In CJ's case, a long time. CJ's played 34 games now, and the Blazers are 18 and 16 in those games. They've been better without him. Nurk has played 24 games. They're 12 and 12 in them. They've been better without him. So I just don't think you can say, look at this well-begun supporting cast, whereas Luka has also had a bunch of injuries to his team, and actually, the value has been shown. You put some competent guys around him, and they do become a really good team. So I just think... 
When you have the same record, when one guy has more offensive output, I think is clearly just a better offensive engine because of the playmaking of Luka and just the effortlessness with which he collapses defenses night to night. And when he's hitting the step backs like he is right now, it's just ridiculous. Or like he has been really for the majority of the season. He's cooled down a little bit, but still pretty darn good. And one is trending in the wrong direction, one is trending in the right direction. I'm going to give it to the dude who's trending in the right direction, who I just think is also indisputably the better player. Definitely. The Blazers have lost four straight. They're 2-8 yeah. and eight in their last ten. Uh, mm-hmm. I completely agree. Also, another thing is, in these big moments, I'm not saying that you would want the ball in anybody else other than Dame's hand. They have they've got a myriad of guys you could go to. Yeah. They can all get their own shot. And there is a complete lack of that in Dallas. I will say, I don't remember what game it was, but one of the games that Dame missed, that offense was still flowing, man. Maybe a little too much mellow down the stretch, but when Mellow's on, he's still got a little something to that game of his. Anybody else who you would consider as even an outside candidate for this list? I mean, honestly, I'd like to mention a guy like Kyrie okay. just because of how efficient uh, he has been this season and the just overall scoring output, you know, nearly 29 points per game. Uh, Kyrie's been exceptional. I just feel like enough people haven't talked about him. I don't think, again, he'd be at the 7 or 8 spot on my list. Mm-hmm. I think he's warranted a mention. Fair enough. And I think that Harden will always be superior as that offensive engine. But, yeah, what Kyrie's doing right now is unthinkable. I do want to ask, too, you said Gobert almost made it here any love for Mitchell at all? I love Mitchell, and I think that what he was doing post-All-Star was utterly phenomenal. But to me, it's like you take him out of this offense, and you still have all the other pieces you have, the kind of shooting you have, the variety of creation that you have, and I think that the offense is just fine. And I think that we have seen that in the games that Mitchell has been has missed this year, and we saw that by the fact that they were better with him off the floor than on it. So if your team is better with you off the floor than on it statistically, I cannot reward you as an MVP candidate, although I do think – Mitchell will be this team's most important player come playoff time. And, oh, I completely agree. And he's phenomenal. But it just doesn't make sense to me to reward the ultimate team efforts. Like, the Jazz and Suns are exceptional in how much they are driven by the depth of quality talent, the duo of stars where it's not just one clearly established above the other in their value. And so that's why I'm not going to reward either of those guys as really legit MVP candidates. All right. On the other side of the break, we've got plenty of more questions. We spent a good half of the show there on the MVP discussion, but I think that it was worthwhile and fun. We'll be back very shortly. You are listening to Nerd Sesh on Blaze Radio and blazeradioonline.com. We are back. Did you miss us? It was a long long couple minutes without all of you our wonderful wonderful listeners who decided that you didn't need to send us a single question today when we politely asked but that's all right because we got plenty of material to work with as is so logan now let's go to some of the things that have recently really stood out and there have been a couple teams that have been really hot there have been a couple guys who are pretty important who have come back from injury we're going to touch on all of that but let's start with the washington wizards who obviously have been topsy-turvy throughout this season they already had a pretty solid winning streak going earlier at one point in the season they've also had some Terrible, terrible losing streaks, particularly at the start of the year. What should we make of what they're doing right now, and do you think that they end up in the real playoffs, meaning they get through the play-in and they're in that best-of-seven format? Yeah, I do, man. Mm. Um, And I think they're a team to be reckoned with once they get there. Uh, I think it's evident by, one, I think they get into the playoffs. They have the 21st uh, strength of schedule the rest of the way. I don't Mm. think it's going to be an issue for the Wizards to win some games and make it close. And then in the play-in game, Westbrook and Beal have the most combined games this season of 30 points or more with five uh, each. In a one-game scenario, I trust that that duo yeah. way more than anybody else out east. I don't care who you pull. The Hornets have struggled with their health. Um, the the Heat, uh, I don't really trust either to create enough reliable offense. Oh, come on. You're not taking them over the Heat in a single game, are you? You madman. I don't think they'll even draw the Heat, first of all, because yeah, I think the Heat win the 7-8 game, I would hope. I completely agree, but I mean, even against like the Pacers, I'm taking their top two all day. Sabonis and uh, 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 Sabonis and Brogdon make it close, but I trust Beal and Westbrook to fill it up and just dominate those games. I will say, Carson, I've, dis- I've discussed this with you. I think a big deciding factor late in those games is going to be uh, shot selection yep. from, Russell we- from Russell Westbrook overall. I know a lot of people have heard he's leading the NBA in clutch field goal percentage. It's kind of cherry-picked, I'd say. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I get it. Overall field goal percentage, he's been good. Westbrook's shot selection in those closing moments has not always been great. Uh, that could have a huge impact. But with the way they've been streaking, man, they've got a good interior defense as well. Uh, I trust the Wizards to win some games, but I trust them even more. In the play-in scenario, I like, they're my second favorite team in the play-in out east. 
Interesting. So I think that you touched on really a huge part of this, which is what we've talked about throughout where you trust the team that kind of has the best players who can just will their team to the win, talking about those superstar guys who can single-handedly get you there. But I think that with the Wizards, it's such a double-edged sword because of Russ. Here's some good stats for you. In wins this year, Russ averages 24-13-12 on 46-36-63 splits. In losses, he averages 20.5-10-10 on 42-29.5-62 splits. His volume does not decrease in losses as far as his attempts, but actually it does slightly. But it's his production that takes such a huge drop-off in the efficiency, and I think that it's just indicative of what kind of style is he going to play to ultimately lead them to winning, but also what it tells you is Russ's volume is so immense that you're going to go to the moon with him or you're going to go down with him every time out there. In wins, he takes one and a half less threes per game. Always a good call for Russ. He also shoots much better on them, but always a good call for him to limit that perimeter attack. He averages .6 turnovers per game less, which is 5.3 in losses. Just a monstrous number. He gets the line .6 times more. And again, some of those margins maybe aren't huge, but I do think that they're telling of that's when he's at his best, when he's a little bit more under control, when he's getting downhill, when he's not taking those threes. And he shoots 4% better from the field and 7% better from three. But regardless, it's just going to come down to, okay, Russ is going to take 20-something shots. When you're talking about a single-game elimination format, Russ does not take his foot off the pedal in those situations. He's not going to say, you know what, this is the time to establish myself as a facilitator. If he did, it would be shocking. I mean, we've seen him so many times in those games try to go supernova, and a lot of times it has been the undoing of his team. His playoff numbers throughout his career are horrendous. I think he shoots under 40% from the field because he can make it harder on himself. But if he is going to have that volume and he's going to get downhill and he's going to collapse the defense regularly and he's going to finish well around the rim and knock down the couple threes that he does take, then he can very easily guide you to a win. So that's the thing. It's just if he has a good day, you have a good day. If he has a bad day, you have a bad day. And that is more true with him than it is, I would say, any other star-level player in basketball because he just consumes so many touches and is going to be so much of your offense in a given game. So that may be enough to get them th through two games. I think it probably gets you through the 9-10 matchup, and I don't know if I could pick them over the Pacers. The Pacers have to get out of that 9 spot, first of all, because the Hornets are still holding down the 8 right now, and I just think the Pacers are certainly better between the two of them, but they haven't been very, very good, and they haven't really kicked into gear yet. So maybe I should say the Wizards are going to be in the playoffs, especially with how the defense is trending. I mean, the defense has been very, very solid now for almost the majority of the season after it was atrocious to start. But something just scares me about being so dependent on Russ, who is so erratic. Dude, um, as long as we get less Alex Len minutes, it should be good. How, uh, though? How are we going to get less Alex Len minutes? I just, they just can't play that. That man sucks. But that's just the reality of the Wizards roster, Logan. They just don't have the depth of quality Dude. players, especially with Bryant <laughs> out for the season, obviously. It's just slim pickings. Give me 48 minutes of Robin Lopez, or give me death, man. All right. I mean, I love it. Um. As long as Westbrook defers to Beal in those big late moments, I don't care what Westbrook does. Like, because you know that's exactly what's happening. Westbrook's going to fill it up. He's going to get you boards. He's going to get you assists. He's going to take bad shots. As long as he's going to Beal in those late game scenarios, I don't care. I don't know that he would, though. And that's the thing with him. It's just I, the confidence is undying. I will trash that man if we yeah. see a, a game winner, a buzzer beater, and Westbrook takes it instead of Beal. That's just foolish. Who is the third guy on this team that could swing one of those results to you? Good one. Oh, come on. No love for the Hotch? No love for Bertans? Oh, it's Bertans, yeah. honestly. If he could make seven threes, that would be a massive game-changing result. What is your man crush on Hotch? Dude, what's not to love? He blends the skills of a wing and a big in a very intriguing way. And once that three-point shot comes along consistently, look out league. All right? Rui Hachimura is coming for you all. I don't know if I can take them over the Pacers, as I've said, and the reason for that is the Pacers just have so many more good players. I mean, the comparison between these two bench units is laughable. Defensively, I'm still going to trust the Pacers more, even though they've taken a step back there and the Wizards have taken a step forward. I just think their highest level of defense is a much higher level. And, uh, yeah, maybe they don't have the factor to where their top two guys can combine for 70 points, but I don't know if they need it. Well, they also have a third guy and in Karis Lavert who can... Absolutely, they really do. change a one-game scenario, and they have a game-changing player defensively, and they have a, the best bench in basketball. So there's just a bunch of stuff that makes me trust them a little bit more still. But the Wizards in a single-game format, very, very scary. All right, 
Let's talk about the other team that has been equally hot and has been really a joy to watch as of late. And I didn't think I'd say that about this team at any point this season. But the Knicks have won eight straight. And they're now sitting at 33-27. and And they're scrapping to be one of the top half playoff teams out east. And they currently are. They're in the four seed. So, Logan, can they win a playoff series? Hell yeah. Love it. I mean, the Knicks definitely have the... They have the possibility of just clamping down a team defensively in the way that other teams don't out east. Um, I think they've got the best defense out east. Um, I don't trust their offense a whole lot, Carson. I don't like running it through Julius Randle. We've had this debate uh, countless times. But I think there's a decent amount of talented guys around them. And if R.J. Barrett plays at the level he has been, uh, I'd give the Knicks a fighting chance maybe in the second round just with how they are defensively. You think they could make an Eastern Conference Finals run? Yeah. Interesting. I mean, if they obviously this takes a lot of things going right, but that's the way that Tibbs plays, man. Tibbs plays a style where, <laughs> yeah, man, in a seven game series, I give him a fighting chance if that defense is, uh, you know, working to maximum efficiency. Because you've got mm-hmm. guys like Julius Randle and RJ Barrett, who, again, if Barrett is playing like the second star, I say that with quotations, the second star he's been playing like as of recently, shooting well off the catch, playmaking for other guys, mm-hmm. getting to his spots, yeah. I completely believe in the Knicks to maybe make, uh, make some noise in the second round. I think they're a – I would pick them over the Hawks today. I think they're a shoe in to win uh, in the first round just because that defense a is so re- – They're so reliable defensively. Okay, what if they draw somebody other than the Hawks? What if it's I'd, the Celtics or the Heat? Ooh. Oh, the Heat would just be an ugly playoff that series, man. That would be man. a slugfest, man. It'd be, actually, it might be kind of fun, man. That'd be a war. It would be the equivalent of the 90s Knicks Heat which were obviously notoriously ugly in that era. Ugly in this era is different, but they would be some 198 games ooh, getting into double digits. Atlanta streaking, so they make it close. Yeah. I, would take, I would take New York over Atlanta. I'm still leaning Boston over New York. I just don't think you can X out Tatum and yeah. uh, Jalen Brown like that. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to see this Heat series now, though. Yeah, I mean, it would be very fun. The concern for me is still... 21st in offensive rating, and I do think that to win a playoff series, you have to kick into that high gear offensively. That is clearly what we've seen last year. It's just offense is what's going to win you games, and it's going to win you series for the most part in these modern NBA games. I will say, though, with what Randall is doing right now, and apparently he has 20 points in the first half of a classic Knicks matinee that is going on right now because they love just playing at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Over his last six, he's averaging 33-9 and 6.5 on 47% from the field and from three. A little bit fluky because of those three-point numbers, but the man has just imposed his will on these games and is just getting to his mid-range spots late and is just not letting his team die. And I do think he can carry a team by brunt force to respectable offense if the shot is going. And the shot has been going for most of this year, and sometimes maybe they won't fall, but I don't think it's fair to say, oh, they're just not going to because he's a legitimate offensive star. And RJ, post-All-Star break, has been a 19-point-per-game score on 43% shooting from three. And when he can shoot reliably from beyond the arc, not just reliably, but at a really high level, that's a really, really good offensive player who's going to compete on defense, as will Randall. So if you get that kind of production from those two offensively, you can do it. You can go out there and win a playoff series because you have the number four defense in basketball. I think you could argue it is the best out east, although I might still slightly lean the Sixers. I think it's pretty close. And I think that the Heat, when they're fully locked in, probably ended that conversation as well. But the reason I think it's still tough to say that they're a favorite, and I will say, I think that can they win a playoff series is probably kind of a cop-out question at this point because we both agree they absolutely can. Will they is the tougher question. You say yes. I don't know if I can get there just because the Hawks have so many more quality guys. And I think obviously defensively not close to the level of the Knicks, but a different team since they got Capella. When Bogey is going, though, I think that that team is scary, and Bogey has been going if Gallo can just stand behind the three-point line and shoot open looks. If Hunter is fully healthy and in final form by the time that the playoffs come around, I think that we're talking about a really, really good team with a lot of quality talent. But what I will say, the Knicks have that the Hawks and really many teams out east don't is an identity. And that matters. They know what they are. They say, okay, we let Julius Randle handle offensively. Sometimes RJ gets into it. Everybody else, kind of just do your thing, and then let's play our butts off on defense, and they're really good at that. Yeah, and I'd say I think the swing factor in all of this is, as you mentioned, DeAndre Hunter. Yeah. If he's healthy and is really impacting the game, that may change my mind. Mm-hmm. 
The Knicks are 3-0 against the Hawks this season, though, man. I trust the track record. I will say, we're talking about a Hawks team that is already right there with them, right? And we're saying maybe it's a toss-up. Maybe I even lean Hawks. And we haven't seen them with their second-best player in a very long time because Hunter has been out for so long. But he's coming back later this week. And is a Hawks team that's trending in the right direction, as are the Knicks, of course. But that would be a great first-round matchup. And by the way, think about what that would mean for the other first-round matchups. Right now, as the seeding is slated, we're looking at Bucks, celtics and Sixers-Heat. That's upset potential, man. So, I don't know. Maybe the Hawks and Knicks playing at the level that they have really throws a little bit of a interesting wrinkle into the Eastern Conference playoffs. But I think that the Knicks absolutely could. I just don't know if I can say that they would and will yet. All right. So, let's talk now about a couple guys who are big-time players who have come back from injuries who we haven't seen in a while. First one is Triple J, who we didn't really know when he was going to be available this year. It felt like it kept getting pushed back. What's the significance of him coming back, Logan? I've been chomping at the bit to talk about Triple J. Mm. Um, Teams should be scared of the Grizzlies, man. If they get into that, uh, let me see, uh, I don't don't know how the play-in is going to shake out yet. Mm -hmm. I think the Grizzlies are a lock to get in, and I'm going to get into why. I just think, first off, the Jazz, the Suns, like whoever whoever ends up drawing the Grizzlies should be scared in the first round because I think there's a lot to like. First off, you already have all of these really great catch-and-shooters around Ja. That's first and foremost in a guy like Desmond Bain, DeAnthony Melton, Grayson Allen, whoever's on the floor. You have so many good floor spacers here for Ja. But while it's been reliable offense, they've got they've also got a great defense. I think Triple J coming back, Carson, gives the Grizzlies – something they haven't had all year, and that is just dependable action in the pick and roll. And, dude, Triple J looks scary out of it, mm-hmm. man. John him, he, John was dotting him up off of the roll. And Jaron looks like he has not lost anything athletically. They needed this really good athletic big back. I, I haven't seen Jaron space the floor a whole lot. It has just been a lot of dominance out of the PNR right now. Mm-hmm. Once he gets his stroke back, if he is reliably hitting, you know, 35% of his threes, Be afraid of the Grizzlies, man. Yeah. I will say, we've seen two games, so we can't just get fully ahead of ourselves, but I think Triple J has looked amazing. You're getting upset at me. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I'm just saying as a team, man, they've they've been great all season without him. He gives them another dynamic they didn't have. I agree. I think that you now have a very legitimate second offensive piece where you don't have to rely on Grayson Allen to go out there and get you 20-something in a big game. But what I've loved about Triple J, because I honestly think these past couple games have been some of the most impressive basketball we have ever seen from him, is just the hyper-aggression. And you talked about out of the pick and roll. The man is cutting hard. He's trying to dunk it when he can. But also just from the perimeter, he's taking dudes off the bounce. He's just being decisive. And that is one of the things about Triple J is he hasn't always had the most refined game inside of the arc. I mean, the shot has been phenomenal, really, obviously, for the past couple years. But he's not like this dominant post presence and all that. But what he is doing is just being decisive, and he's attacking quickly, and we haven't always seen that from him, and I love it. He's put an emphasis on getting downhill, and you talked about how we haven't really seen him spacing the floor. I love that he scored 38 points in two games with 1-3 because, again, I'm never going to question his shot. I'm never going to be like, I don't know, can Triple J make a big-time three? Of course he can, unorthodox as it may look, but the fact that he is, again, putting such an emphasis on getting to the bucket feels like he's somehow added to his game during that injury period, and he's also, by the way, done this all in 21 minutes per game so like they're still trying to work their way back into it with him but he does not look like he needs to have his way worked back into it he looks fantastic athletically looks fully in tune with the game and again is playing aggressive and defensively made some great plays he was fighting on the glass in that clips game had four offensive boards which is probably his biggest weakness as a player to this day along with maybe the foul tendency but just not being that real presence as a rebounder but he was fighting and it just feels like he wants it and when he plays like this where he, again, is trying to get downhill this much, it's not just a floor-spacing big who can do a little something for himself, but a guy who's going to go out there and be a legit 20-point-per-game scorer, I think the Grizz go up another level. I agree with you because it's a team that already has a top-10 defense that has a perfectly fine offense, and this makes them better on both ends. It makes them a lot better shooting where they've been 23rd in threes made and 17th in three-point percentage, and obviously your primary creator in jaw isn't that threat from beyond the arc. So, I don't know. You talked about the play-in. I've been saying that I would take the dubs in that matchup if it came down to it in that do-or-die game because it would probably be in the second round of the play-in because I think the Warriors are going to end up in the 9-10 and the Grizzlies are probably going to end up in the 8, although all of that could change. They're separated by like a game, but that's been how the standings have kind of stood for a while. I stand by the fact that I would take the dubs, I think, because Steph is averaging 38 a game this month, but 
with Triple J back, with the way Grayson has been playing, where he has four 23-plus point games in his last 10, and their ability to just have any guy be a hero, and obviously this is what has made the Grizzlies special for two years for a team of their standards, is just the depth of talent. I don't know, man. The Grizzlies are really, really good, and they just got a lot better. Well, I think uh, what you touched on, he's been alert defensively as well. But to your point about him rolling and being so much more aggressive, mm-hmm. that's a distinction between him playing like Larry Markin. And I think that was a genuine concern that we had when Triple J got hurt. Mm-hmm. Is he going to be able to be that dominant interior force? And he he looks like it. Yeah, uh, We've never seen Triple J play like this. It's a distinction between guys like Markin and Porzingis where they're not going inside, and it's so frustrating. I don't have any of those concerns about Triple J anymore. Yeah. Last year, half of his shots came from three through two games. A quarter of his shots have come from three. Crazy small sample size, but I think you just feel it in his mentality. And I love what we have seen from him, and I'm very, very excited about what we continue to see. And I'll go on the record. I'm taking the Grizzlies over the Warriors in that hypothetical matchup. Interesting. One thing that does concern me about the Grizzlies, and this is a little ironic because I was just on the I would take Jaw over to Rosen in a one-game format last week. If Jaw's shot isn't on, not necessarily a shot because I don't think he's going to try to win the game from the perimeter, but if he's just not scoring at a high level, I do worry a little bit because he's going to try to put his imprint all over that game. He's just that kind of competitor, a little bit of the rust factor we talked about earlier. I trust him more because I think he takes smarter shots, and I think his playmaking value is fantastic because he collapses defenses all the time. But I don't know, man. They have so many more good players than the Warriors. It's not even close, but the Warriors have Steph Curry, and that (laughs) is very compelling to me. All right. So last guy we want to talk about here, Anthony Davis. We've seen him back one game, obviously, after he missed quite a good deal of time. And maybe he didn't play his best, but sort of what were your takeaways from that first game from him? Um, so it's interesting. I mean, it seemed like he wasn't really a focal point at all for the Lakers. Uh, we saw a lot of creation from Kyle Kuzma, from Dennis Schroeder. Um, I, I have my concerns about the Lakers as a team, and I do have concerns with AD coming back to play with Drummond first off. I don't know how much I like them defensively when you're having – you saw a lot of three-pointers from Porzingis with those stretch bigs. You're going to have to have Drummond and Davis pull out to the perimeter. I don't really like mm-hmm. that personally. On the offensive end, in the pick and pop, you're not getting any of that from AD or Drummond. Both of the guys like to roll. It just it limits it limits the dynamicism of your – the dynamism of your offense. Um, and then I mean, there's other little things about the Lakers that concern me, but the biggest thing is just – I don't know if Drummond and Davis can play together, and mm-hmm. that, that is genuinely concerning just because it, it literally makes them so so little dynamic, gives them so little versatility. I'm, I'm not a big fan of it right now. I know they're easing AD back in, so I'll keep it you know light and uh, I'll stay hopeful, but they're just, they're just not going to be a dynamic defense or offense, and that scares me. Interesting. Really, you don't think that they're going to be a great team defense still? No, no, no. I still – No. They're going to be great defensively. This is a great team defense. What I'm saying is, in those little scenarios, I think that they're going to allow a few more three-pointers tonight because AD and Drummond just aren't as switchable out to the perimeter. We saw it against the Mavericks. I think that's a trend that continues. You think Drummond is that much more of a liability there than a JaVale or a Dwight last year? Yeah. Drummond looks, dude, Yeah, Drummond is just just not a high-effort guy. And he's a lot heavier on his feet. I'll agree with you there. He doesn't have the build of those guys necessarily. I mean, Dwight was obviously a big, strong guy, but I think he moves better than Drummond. Not to mention that not only do we see Kuzma and Schroeder creating, we got a lot of Drummond post-touches, which, again, I I am praying that when LeBron comes back, we see zero of that. But that also scares me. I think LeBron eradicates them, but I don't think we can say with absolute certainty I'm not going to give you any hard fit takeaways yet until we see everything gelling for this team, which, by the way, we kind of need to see soon because the clock is running down on the regular season. This was not a good game for AD. Four points on two of ten shooting in 16 minutes. It was a lot of tough jumpers, and that's to be expected, first of all, coming off of injury, and second of all, I would say arguably without LeBron to create those really good looks out of the pick and roll. He's still at some moments getting downhill. I thought he was fine, but a lot of facing up, a lot of the little mini step-back stuff that – Sometimes he can get too cute with, and when he's not hitting those shots as much as he was in the bubble, then you're not getting the best version of Anthony Davis, but I'm not going to decisively say that's a fundamental flaw in his game right now because this is his first game back off of injury, and I think you're just not going to be as aggressive unless you're Triple J, in which case you look the best that you ever have, but I honestly am still going to put my faith in this duo, but... Like I said, it's time to see how this group all comes together because, Logan, I mean, 
Do you think they have enough time to just get the wheels turning? We have 13 games left of the regular season, and LeBron is doing light court work, and AD just got back. I don't know, man. It is going to be it's going to be something like we never we've never seen a yeah. duo this talented be this underprepared. I'd say I, I still think the pieces are here when you have LeBron and AD, and you've got a decent amount of catch and shooters around them. But chemistry is important in the playoffs, man. And what's your take, man? Do you think that? Are you scared that the Lakers aren't going to make it out of the West? Yes, I am scared because I fear that (laughs) we need to actually see them all together. Last year, they were the ultimate healthy team where their stars played pretty much every game and the effort was never in question. And I think that that paid off for them come playoff time. They had that synergy and they knew what their identity was. And now we're going to be looking at, I don't know what it is, 10 games of them down the stretch to figure it out. And yeah, they're not going to lose in the first round. I wouldn't think. But you're going to draw the Nuggets, and that's not an easy one. That's not a walkover. So they're still going to be my pick because, as I've said many times over, when AD and LeBron have been out there, they've actually been way better than they were last year. And I think we saw the power of that duo along with a great team defense last year. But the shooting is always in question. The role player is always in question. The drum and fit is always in question. And now we're getting to the point where just the cohesion of the team and the chemistry is in question. And this this may sound crazy. You can cap me uh, if you think I'm off base here, Carson. Okay. I would start Trez, man, alongside AD. I think there's a case to be made. Offensively, you're not adding spacing, though, unless you consider the Trez 15-footers that he's added spacing. You're not, but, dude, Trez just, he's so much more mobile. He's so much more alert, engaged. Mm -hmm. Like, he's a dog. Dude, Drummond is one of the least aesthetically pleasing basketball players ever. Oh, the least. I hate watching Andre Drummond. I gave him the (laughs) ugliest basketball player to watch award earlier this year. It's not a joy at all. But... We'll see. I continue to remain skeptical about the fit there, and it hasn't looked great thus far, but we still haven't seen this team in its final form, and that does matter. What do you think is, is going to be of bigger importance in the playoffs uh, for the Lakers? The just pure shooting, or do you think the chemistry is going to be more important? I think that's a good question. They were able to survive with pretty average shooting last year, arguably even below average. You would always think that that's pretty huge, though. I think it's going to come down to probably the Drummond fit, but if the fit isn't working, then just don't try to force it to work. That's my theory. Just don't play Drummond. Who do you turn to? Do you turn to Trez? I think you turn to a little bit of Marky Mark. I mean, it's not great. Offensively, I still think it's better just because of the pure floor spacing, and defensively, it's not better. But I mean, Gasol's been 52% off the catch since the break when he's been out there. Yeah. No, but I'm saying defensively. Oh, it's it's atrocious. You have every same issue that you have with Drummond, but just less athletic tools, less mobility. So, I don't know. Maybe he is your best option, but it's going to be weird. But it was weird last year. They played AD with a center, and it worked pretty consistently. So, that'll do it for us here today. And that'll do it for us here in the Bill Austin Radio Studio this semester. And you guys are probably thinking... Oh, no nerd sesh? What a bummer. Well, the good news is our content does not stop. we got another show in a couple days. It's just not going to be from this studio, but it has been a pleasure speaking to you all from here all semester. It was a great joy after, obviously, we didn't have this privilege last semester. We weren't even in the state of Arizona, and here we are. Feel, things feel a little bit more back to normal as we're doing this show here talking to you all. As always, you can find out some more of our content on YouTube where we do a bunch of video breakdowns. I've got another one coming up pretty soon, as does Logan. They're both historically focused, which will be a little bit of fun. That's obviously part of our forte. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh and on Instagram at nerd sesh. And with that, I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. 
So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 